Welcome to You Wanted a Hit, a podcast in which we discuss unlikely, perplexing, and positively bizarre songs that swept the nation and often the world. Hit songs that, looking back, make us think, how did this get played on the radio? Do people actually like this? Do we like this? Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm your co-host, Michael Smith, and I'll be discussing one song per episode with my co-host and fellow music fanatic, pop culture enthusiast Theo Beidler. Each episode, we'll take turns exploring a song, while the other host has no idea what song will be the focus until we hit play. <laughs> yeah, you know, a little, uh, little something from our friends at Sierra Nevada. I should be drinking Sierra Nevada, but I don't think they'll be angry that I'm drinking a Guinness. I think every brewery loves Guinness. You can't not. I, I think you're right. And it's in a Guinness glass, mm-hmm. too. I don't think anybody is upset about Guinness. Yeah. Let's dive in. What do you have for us? Um, you know, one of my, f- I would say my favorite, like more surprising episode, Spurred On by an Obituary. Yeah, that's true. That was Napoleon the 14th. They're coming to take me away. Ha ha. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't heard that episode, I highly recommend it. But today I bring another Spurred On by an Obituary. Whoa. I didn't read this obituary, but I, I heard about it on a radio show. Is that where they you go talking- for your, uh, that's where you go for your ideas now? Well, you can find... You can find good stuff. I heard them talking about it on a radio show. They were talking about the artist and her peculiar song. So it certainly caught my attention. Hmm. Uh, and days later, I saw that she was featured in the Grammys In Memoriam section, uh, which made sense for someone who had a, a big song, sure. But uh, now after doing the research, I realized that she was a very prolific artist. And uh, I think she's much bigger than the song that she is mainly remembered for. Do you have an idea? I, I do. You, you, you perked up a little bit. I do have an idea. What do you think? Well, there's a deceased artist from the past few months that I have been wanting to cover one of their songs just hasn't come up yet. Who so I'm wondering if it's the same one. Well, let's just, let's just, I'll tell you if, that, if it's the one, if, mm. when you play it. That's a good point. Okay. Well, here we go. I rode yep. my bicycle. Yeah, that's it. Right. Last night. Uh, Melanie? Yeah. Melanie. It almost seems like you're avoiding me. I'm okay alone. Of course. You got something I need. Well, I There it is. Brand new key. So you know the song. Uh, I do, and I gotta say, shout out to my dad. I'm sure he'll listen to this because he has ever since we started the podcast been asking us to do this song oh wow and then uh when she passed i was like oh it might be time for us to do the song he's like there's no better time and you beat me to it uh, i did i beat you it, it, it's been about a month you had time um well you know we had some other other topics to cover well i'm sorry i'm taking the song away from you you know what i think it kind of worked out better this way i, I, hope I, I like your, your i love it. proud i'm excited uh, do you know much about Melanie? I don't know anything. Oh, great. You're in for a treat then. There's a lot of cool little side stories we're going to go down. Love it. I feel like uh, several of the songs that we've covered from uh, this era, there's side stories and wild connections to other musicians and just uh, I feel like it's they've been very interesting. I love a good side story. Well, we have Melanie and Safka was born in Queens, New York on February 3rd, 19. 19- 47. She grew up in the Queens neighborhood of Astoria, 
Shout out to friend oh. of the pod and once guest host, Amr, who read oh, yeah. Astoria very hard. Oh, we all just spent uh, a great weekend in Astoria last month. We did. Month. We did. Uh, her father was of Ukrainian ancestry and her mother Italian. Her mother was a jazz singer, went by Pauline Polly Altamar, hmm. which is uh, certainly how Melanie herself got into music. She was playing ukulele and singing as early as the age of four. And she was even featured on a radio okay. show at four entitled Live Like a Millionaire. I could not find much about this show, but wow, off, off to a, a good start. 1940s, early 50s radio show. Hmm. Melanie was quoted saying, my mom was a jazz singer and she'd take me to all the clubs. So I had a strong jazz influence. And I always wrote, always. When I was five and six, I was writing torch songs. I didn't know what I was saying. And my mom would just laugh. As a teenager, I also got very into Kurt Wheel and Lotta Lena. Lati Lena, they say it. Uh, Billie Holiday and Bessie Smith. Solo women who sing their hearts out. All that really hit me. I wasn't familiar with the term torch song, but it's essentially just a love song, usually about unrequited love or lost love. Mm-hmm. Uh, she continued in that same interview saying, but my soul music was folk. At 16, my dad bought me a Joan Baez album and that was it. So I read that she moved to Long Bench, New Jersey, I believe as a teenager. Uh, she would end up graduating. Long Bench? Long Branch. Oh, Long Branch. Oh, I know where that is. Yeah. It's a place. I was like, uh, what's up with this Long Bench in New Jersey? <laughs> long Bench, New Jersey. <laughs> long Branch, New Jersey. Uh, she would graduate from Red Bank High School. However, she was not allowed to walk in her graduation due to an overdue library book, which uh, is just kind of badass. That's a, that's Yeah, and it's absurd. Uh, I got excited because I thought that Kevin Smith and Jason Mewes also went to Red Bank High School. They went to the neighboring high school, but mm. they are also from Red Bank. And that is the filming location of the legendary movie Clerks. Oh, That's right. I just want to throw that in there. Second episode in a row that Clerks came up. Uh, it is. You're right. Oh, I forgot about that. I was actually thinking, we, we, we don't mention Kevin Smith enough in this podcast because there's a lot of good <laughs> weird music in all of his movies. So. Yeah, that's true. So it was in high school where Melanie started playing live. She said that I started singing out. My mom would take me to the folk clubs in the village. And I was also singing on the street in Washington Square. It was funny because I was really shy, except when it came to my singing. So I'd have my guitar strapped to my back. None of the cool people in the village had a guitar case. And I wanted to be Joan Baez, but my voice was really loud, gravelly. It came from deep down in my stomach. I really just had something different. Hmm. After high school, she would officially move to the city, and she studied acting for a bit at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. Wait, so is she playing, she's playing the folk clubs in New York. That was after she heard the Joan Baez album at age 16. Yeah, so she quickly... So she had like a short window here. It's all, it's all very short. Playing. She she gets her career okay. going quick here. Yeah. Well, when you start at four years old, she's been putting in the time. That's true. So yeah, during college, though, so you know, 18, 19 here, she's also continuing to play in the clubs in Greenwich Village. Um, uh, this is the time of, you know, when Greenwich Village is the folk scene. You've got folks, uh, you know, Johnny Mitchell, James Taylor, Bob Dylan, all playing the bitter end as she was in other clubs around that area. And it was during this time that Melanie went to an acting audition, uh, but because she was carrying her guitar at the time, the security guard sent her to the office of a producer at Columbia Records named Peter Shekarek, uh, <laughs> as he, she just, he figured she was an artist. So she went there, <laughs> and uh, she decided to audition for him instead. Some kind of security. Yeah. Well, it worked out well, uh, because not only would Peter sign her to Columbia Records, but Whoa. they would also get married. 
Whoa. Yeah. This uh the security guard changed history forever. I mean, actually yes. This song absolutely would not exist without Peter and without that security guard. So pretty wow. wild. I wish we knew the security guard's name. I know. We we can't even figure out the band Len, who the Lenny they're named after is. I don't think we're <laughs> gonna figure out the security guard in, in nineteen sixty one here or whatever. Turns out it's it's Lenny's dad. <laughs> oh God. Can you imagine? <laughs> we can pretend. He moved to Canada shortly before having Lenny. <laughs> Ellie said, I got signed to Columbia and we recorded Beautiful People. It was produced by Peter, who also became my husband. No one else ever produced me. The song became what they called a turntable hit because Columbia didn't service the song to radio or in the records, but it mm-hmm. caught on anyway. So I'll send you uh, Beautiful People. I got a handful of songs for you tonight, so hopefully you're ready to. I'm ready. I love, love episodes like this. Beautiful it's a groovy people. little tune. Quite the, uh, quite the album cover here. I believe some Lisa Frank stuff. Do, <laughs> oh, I should just listen to the album episode about Lisa Frank. Uh, Dude, wasn't it insane? It was, uh, very surprising. I had no idea. It was so good. No <laughs> uh, this, is a, this album cover, you'll probably see a lot today. This is her greatest hits. So. Yeah. We share nice the same backdoor. Cool, cool little ditty. Funky Greenwich Village kind of stuff. Uh, the song, while it did not have chart success here in the U.S., I did read that it went top 10 in the Netherlands. Uh, that really? may have been a year or two later. It could have been like a re-release of some sort. Uh, I, huh. I found some conflicting dates about this song, but everything I read from Melling directly, it sounded like this song was, would have been recorded in Columbia uh, because shortly oh. after she was either dropped by Columbia or they allowed her to part ways as she and her husband went on to sign with Buddha Records. Buddha, they they came up, uh, is that the last episode? Was it? Oh, Buddha Records put out um, More, More, More by Andrea True Connection uh, after it got big in Jamaica. Uh, and oh, that's funny. what okay. Steal My Sunshine samples. Wow. That Buddha Records also put put that record out. I don't have anything in here about this, but apparently Rolling Stone hated Buddha Records. And panned every song and album that ever came out from them. There was a vendetta of oh, some really? sort. Yeah. That's like some pitchfork shit. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, so she signed a bit of records. And this is where, essentially, she would have her first real hit in 1969 with the song Bobo's Party. And I say essentially first hit. Bobo's Party? It went number one in France. And it was very popular throughout Europe. But it was not popular here. So Who is ever- Bobo? We have four find out. We'll figure out song. We have a rare uh, situation where an American songwriter becomes bigger in Europe first. And not Australia first? Not Australia. Ooh, this, this one's a little more aggressive. A little more aggressive. This is a live video from Beat Club, which was a popular program in West Germany at the time. Oh, this is way more like Janis Joplin sounding. Yeah. Or uh, Jefferson Airplane. I think this is definitely but acoustic. the direction that she's gone in. I also feel like some of the live stuff I heard is more kind of raw and emotional than the recorded stuff. That that happens a lot. Happens a lot. And um, while Peter and Melanie have a, a wonderful, loving marriage for many decades, uh, she makes lots of comments about the fact that her songs would not be hits without Peter, which is probably a positive, but she also, she's like, I hate 
what he does with his stuff. <laughs> so I, I think she's always kind of a counterculture, wanting to push against the uh, the industry yeah. that way. Do we know what the song's about? Uh, you know, I didn't look up that. Didn't look into that. Bobo's I party. I need to know. If anybody knows Bobo? Reach out to us. <laughs> uh, she said of this, my career first really took off in France with Bobo's party. That title just sounded so right with a French accent. <laughs> I was at the Olympic Theater in Paris, co-billed with Gilbert Bequeux, who was like the Sinatra of France. He introduced me on stage there, and I really took off. Wow. So her debut album received positive reviews from Billboard, which described her voice as wise beyond her years. And she said her non-conformist approach to the selections on this LP make her a new talent to be reckoned with. Mm. With the success, Melanie was one of only three solo female artists asked to perform at the legendary Woodstock Festival. Whoa. Janis Joplin and her idol, Joan Baez, Mm. being the other two. Uh, Funny enough, her mom drove her to the festival, uh, and she had no idea how big it would be. So I'm going to read a quote from Melanie. It's long. I've already edited it for brevity. It's still long, but I love it. I love the story behind Woodstock, and you're going to hear it. Okay. She said, it was the experience that I shared with 500,000 people, or seemed like that at least. I was pretty much an unknown person. At the time, I was in England and had been asked to do a film score and had been working in the studio right next door to where the Rolling Stones were. I had the London Sympathy Orchestra in the studio with me, and my husband was the producer, and I was deciding whether I should go back and do this Woodstock thing. I had pictured three days of peace, love, and music. And it was going to be more like a picnic with kids, families, arts and crafts, and going shopping. I had no clue. Mm. <laughs> she continued, my mother drove me to Woodstock. We finally found the hotel, and I was all by myself with my mom. So we go into the hotel, and there's Sly Stone walking by, then surrounded by media with Janis Joplin drinking Southern Comfort. And all of a sudden, now I know this is something really big. That traffic wasn't just an accident ahead. It was something really, really big, and I was going to have to sing in front of it. We were told that we needed to go by helicopter. I had never been in a helicopter before, so I asked, why can't we just drive like everyone else? <laughs> so we got in the helicopter, and they stopped my mother. They asked who she is, and I'm like, it's my mom. And they said, no mothers, just <laughs> performers and managers. <laughs> what? I didn't have the smarts to say, oh, yeah, she's my manager. Yeah, what about momagers? <laughs> yeah, Justice so for momagers. She, she's laughing during when she says this. She says, so I said, bye, my mom, and we separated. I went off in the helicopter. As we began descending into the field, I looked out the window and asked the pilot, what is that? He said it was the people. Then he pointed to the stage, and it looked like a football field, and I thought, I'm going to die. Get me out of here. (laughs) Once we landed, I was led to a little tent. There was an upper echelon tent, and then there was a miscellaneous people tent. I was put in the teeny tent with Tim Harden, who was way more known than I was at the time. I started thinking, oh my God, how can I possibly do this? I wouldn't be able to get up in front of all these people. They kept coming in between acts saying, you're next, you're next. I developed this deep bronchitis, nervous cough, and it just sounded like the demons were coming out of me. Joan Baez, who was in the upper echelon tent, heard me coughing and sent me tea. And I thought, <laughs> Joan Baez, oh my God, she's my idol. Yeah. Her sending me tea was my Woodstock moment. So wholesome. Hours later, it started to rain and the other side was just beginning to light up with candles that the farm was passing out. Right before I went on, the announcer made kind of an inspirational message about the lighting of the candles and keeping the light alive. I really thought when it started to rain, everybody was going to pack up and go home. I thought it was going to be my reprieve and I was going to be saved. I was one girl with a guitar and an unknown one at that. And I'm going to be thrown on stage right after Ravi Shankar 
and the announcement I was called. Woodstock was a life-changing experience. I really sensed a connectedness with the people. I felt a positive wave and the human power thrown into me, and I can never forget that. It wasn't a career move for me. I was just one person and didn't have a point of reference. Didn't have a manager out there saying, you got to do this or that. It was just me, and I went on stage, and I didn't even know what I was going to do. I wasn't promoting anything. I didn't have any other agenda except that I had to get through to these people. Whatever it is, it was my defining moment. I didn't know if they were going to stone me or throw tomatoes. <laughs> I had an out-of-body experience when I walked out on that stage. I left my body. I didn't hear a thing. I wasn't there. I was hovering above my body. And in some moment, felt one with myself again. It was an extraordinary circumstance that I was put into. Wow. So that's her, her Woodstock moment. And, and it was, was her moment. Yeah, it was her coming out moment of sorts. One of the least known artists playing. Yeah. There's one video of her at Woodstock. I'll send that to you. She does. It is all recorded, and it is on Spotify and Apple Music and all that. And it is great. Um, it's crazy that there are only three women solo artists there, first of all. But then also, definitely. I love that like, Joan Baez was like, take care of her from afar. It's like, I got you. Like, I know how I it know, feels. Right? You know? That's pretty cool. Pretty wild. This song in particular, uh, she had never played before in front of people, and she hadn't ever wow. recorded it, and she wasn't going to play it. And she she really was kind of like taken over by the moment. Yeah, this has that aggressive guitar playing, too. and but Pretty wild thinking that I think she went on at like 11.30 at night as well. <laughs> so to think that she went on stage, it's pouring rain, 400,000 people or whatever. Solo. Her and a guitar, solo. Nobody knows who she is, and she fucking just... Yeah, down. she's killing it. The guitar playing's uh, her guitar playing's very uh, blues influenced. It definitely is. I think she's got a lot of different influences. She talks about in some interviews how like she she loves being able to blend all kinds of different musical backgrounds together in songs. Yeah, surprise people. Man, this is great. Some of these comments here, it is interesting that people are saying like this is one of the best Woodstock performances, but mm. it's not on the albums or films very much like this is this performance is from there is a release of the lost performances so to speak mm, okay. and then a bunch of people are saying like this this is one that like people need to hear but like you don't hear her name with Woodstock a lot it's interesting yeah and from what I can I mean I'm sure there are other examples of this but it was definitely her coming out moment it was her defining moment and she yeah. actually went we'll talk about it in a second but um she became kind of like the festival female artist uh, and she would play every festival mm. and be asked to come to every festival. Got Something it. about, I mean, she just captivated the audience. You don't see the candles out in the rain. They don't do any crowd shots there, but, but apparently it was like a, a big deal and a defining moment. Uh, so because of that, seeing the candles in the rain, it would inspire her to write what would become her first big hit here in the U S which is called lay down for candles in the rain in parentheses got some gospel vibes here yeah so she recorded this with a full black gospel choir which was fairly rare at that time it sounds nothing like brand new key yeah <laughs> well, we'll <get> <laughs> this song's badass yeah this is cool this song's a banger yeah i can i could i could hear this in a vietnam documentary <laughs> i know i was gonna say it does kind of give me like ccr vibes in a way yeah 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 i didn't put this in there anywhere but i read some interviews with her and one of the interviewers asked her like how she feels about kind of being the original a gravelly voiced singer and loud screamer singer or whatever and the interviewer says like you know people that came after you like 
essentially inspired by her to, like, to come out and, and do this. Uh, and she kind of says, like, yeah, like, you know, I probably owe everyone an apology, but like them and Florence and Joanna Newsom, she's like, I kind of like did start that whole thing, which is kind of true. Yeah. Huh. But definitely in the 60s, people weren't doing this. Women weren't. No, definitely not. Did Rolling Stone give this a uh, half star out of five? Well, yeah, I don't know. Uh, they didn't. They, they panned almost everything she did. So, <laughs> I think this song they might have said it was like a backhanded compliment. Yeah, that's what I figured because it was such a big Jan- song. Janis Joplin ripoff or something. I'm sure or something like that. Even more crazy, and I don't know how true this is, but Melanie might be credited with being the artist that essentially started the candle slash lighters in the air thing at concerts. Whoa, because of that. Woodstock moment where the farm passed out a bunch of candles, everyone did it. People would come to her shows and light a candle or light a lighter mm. to kind of say, We were at Woodstock with you. We had that experience with you. And it, she became known for it. And also, that's so much yeah. so that venue promoters and fire marshals would <laughs> encourage her not to play the song because they, they didn't want that happening <laughs> in the venues. Uh, and apparently, it kind of took on a life of its own. And, and that's how people started doing that. Wow. I don't know how true that huh. is, but pretty awesome that's, it was. That's fun to think about. I mean, there's definitely a, there's got to be a start I mean, to that somewhere, right? I mean, Why not? Uh, I was thinking when you were talking about the candles at Woodstock, I was like, oh yeah, they tried to do the candles at Woodstock 99 as well, and that's how everything ended up on fire. That's exactly right, actually. <laughs> I did not think about that. <laughs> uh, so this song, Lay Down, peaked at number six. Uh, she would also have... On the Hot 100? Uh, yes. Uh, she would also have success with her song Peace Will Come and her cover of the Rolling Stones' Ruby Tuesday. Uh, I have a great side story for you. Love a side quest. Are you familiar with the Powder Ridge Rock Festival? No. I wasn't either. What kind, what kind of powder are we talking about well, here? We're talking about <laughs> snow. It, it takes place in Connecticut, but uh, mm-hmm. I think there, there were definitely a lot of drugs happening. I'm not sure it was powder, though. I assumed. The Powder Ridge Rock Festival was scheduled for July 30th through August 2nd at the Powder Ridge Ski Area in Middlefield, Connecticut. It was originally planned after the success of Woodstock the year before, like many Mm -hmm. festivals around the country. But the year after Woodstock, 30 of the 40 planned festivals were canceled due to local opposition in their their areas, Uh, especially after the disaster. Altamont. Altamont. Yeah. and like the anti-hippie movement that I had yeah. no idea that. I mean, it makes sense that so many festivals want to pop up, but it's crazy that 40 were planned and, and 30 didn't happen. Wow. Powder Ridge Ski Festival was one of them. However, some folks didn't get the memo and about 30,000 attendees <laughs> showed up anyways <laughs> to find, quote, no food, no entertainment, no adequate plumbing, and at least 70 drug dealers. <laughs> Perfect. So it's kind of like the f- fire festival of <laughs> very before fire festival uh willie manchester wrote powder ridge was an accident waiting to happen and it happened <laughs> great line uh volunteer doctor william abruzzi who's actually like a famous drug doctor he went to all the festivals and helped people that would you know trip too hard oh, okay. uh he said Important work he said he declared a drug crisis on august 1st saying woodstock was a pale pot scene this is a heavy hallucinogenic scene. <laughs> and I mention all this uh, because the festival did not happen and none of the major acts showed up to play the festival. Except for one. Yes. Melanie showed up. Yes. And I, and I read a couple local 
couple local random bands did as well. But she was the only one that was scheduled to play and actually showed up. Uh, she pl- apparently played for the crowd on a homemade stage powered by Mr. Softy Trucks. Uh, that's badass. Badass. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> that is... Fucking rad. That's punk as fuck. Before punk was even a thing. <laughs> yeah. One anecdote from the festival, which we can probably remove from the podcast, but I will tell you, was, quote... One of the more sensational scenes, attested to by several witnesses, occurred in a small wooded area near some homes. A boy and girl, both naked and approaching from different directions, met under the tree. On impulse, they suddenly embraced. She dropped to her knees. He mounted her from behind. And after he had achieved his climax, they parted, apparently without exchanging a word. (laughs) Powder Ridge, baby. Wow, amazing. Well, there, there's just like no, there's no consequences for anyone's actions. There's nobody else there. <laughs> I do want to dig more into that. because it, it's, it's just like a big festival with no infrastructure at all. And 30,000 people. Apparently, like leading into it, the promoters were like, I don't know. We'll see. It could happen still. Because I guess that's kind of how Woodstock happened too. That there was like threats of cancelization and it didn't, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, Melanie would go on to perform many other festivals, including... Strawberry Fields, Isle of Wright, and the original Glastonbury Festival in 1971. Mm-hmm. Uh, she also performed on the Ed Sullivan Show, uh, at least twice from what I can tell. So this is her channel, and it looks like she writes the descriptions. It just says, Ed likened me to Elvis, and oh, then wow. ellipsis points. <laughs> well, I mean, that's cool. So peace will come on the Ed Sullivan Show. Yeah. Uh, it was during this time that Melanie left Buddha Records, and she went on to create her own label called Neighborhood Records Cool, with her husband, and it is here where she will release her biggest hit, Brand New Key, in 1972. You know the song, so you're, you're aware of the theme, if you will. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. For those who haven't really listened to it, the song is essentially about a girl on roller skates trying to attract the attention of a boy innocent enough but of course not everyone took it that way right uh we'll get into the controversy as i'm sure you're you're aware but the story of how she wrote this song is bizarre for a long while melanie was a vegetarian but it was not (laughs) agreeing where i thought this was starting (laughs) well i know it's 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 so strange but she's a vegetarian it wasn't agreeing with her she always felt ill uh, so she sought out the help of a fasting guru in California named Bernard Jensen. <laughs> so he put her on a fasting diet for 27 days where she consumed nothing except for distilled water. Uh, she said, quote, it had to be distilled water so you didn't get any extra minerals or anything. What the hell? Yeah. At the time, <laughs> she started getting visions. And yeah, this sounds dangerous. Yeah, totally. So she's getting visions and she's hallucinating a lot, which she actually enjoys. Like, it's yeah, good for, I like, mean, if you run out of drugs, just stop eating and drinking. She wasn't uh, didn't really do drugs, apparently, hmm. but this was her thing. Uh, so she didn't want to stop the fast, but the guru encouraged her to start eating again. Uh, he even encouraged her to eat meat, which she was against at first. However, he said that it would quote ground her. The so Melanie said, "I stopped the fast gradually by eating partially cooked grated carrots and zucchini." I did this for a few days, and then I was on my way to a flea market. I came back with a big bag full of crazy stuff, and I was hungry. 
we were passing something and I smelled this aroma. Dr. Jensen said it would occur to me that I would just know. And I looked over (laughs) and it was McDonald's. (laughs) Okay. So (laughs) she said, I don't know what it was, but we pulled in and I got one of those combos. No sooner than I'd finished the last bite of burger, I wrote brand new key. It just came into my head. I had one of those little practice guitars in the van with me. And when my husband, who was my record producer, heard me singing, he said, what's that? And I said, oh, some silly song I'm just playing around. And he said, no, no, do that part again. And I did. And he said, Melanie, that is a hit. And I said, (laughs) hit? No. If this is a hit, I am doomed to be cute for the rest of my life. And that's exactly what Mm. happened. So the burger was the brand new key. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) I mean, wouldn't it have been any food that smelled good? He's like, you'll just know. It's like you haven't eaten in 27 days. Whatever you smell, you're going to want. I I, I agree with you. (laughs) But she said in a different interview, the aroma brought back memories of roller skating Mm. and learning to ride a bike. And the vision of my dad holding the back fender of the tire and me saying to my dad, you're holding, right? You're holding, you're holding, right? Mm-hmm. And then I'd look back and he wasn't holding and I'd fall. Right. So that whole thing came back to me and came out this song. <sighs> McDonald's, you know, a little part of our youth. I get it. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think it reminded her of youthful days and okay. she wrote Slow Diddy. We interrupt this discussion of a weird pop song to tell you about our friends at Dark Matter Coffee in Chicago, Illinois. Dark Matter adheres to a philosophy where quality coffees are sourced based on traceability, innovation, and social responsibility. They've created direct partnerships with farmers that allows them to directly source their beans from the plant to the cup. And we'd like you to try the coffee on us. So head to darkmattercoffee.com, fill up your cart, and enter code WANTEDAHITCAST. That's all one word, WANTEDAHITCAST, for free shipping on coffee beans from Dark Matter Coffee. Get freshly roasted. The song hit radio in October 1971, uh, with many people rushing to the record stores asking for the roller skate song or the bicycle song. Mm. Then we knew what it was called. Uh, but when it was also released, it was met with controversy as many radio stations banned the song, thinking it was about sex and essentially sexual Which is innuendo. really understandable. Yes. And she said that. She said, I wrote Brand New Key in about 15 minutes one night. I thought it was cute. A kind of old 30s tune. I guess a key and a lock have always been Freudian symbols and pretty obvious ones at that. There was no deep, serious expression behind the song, but people read it, read things into it. They make up incredible stories as to what the lyrics said and what the song meant. She continued, My idea about songs is that once you write them, you have very little say in their life afterward. It's like having a baby. You conceive a song, you deliver it, and then give it to it. You give it as good of a start as you can. After that, it's on its own. People will take it any way they want to take it. That's a great analogy. Yeah. Uh, could you could you read the the refrain from the song? Just, sure. Just so our listeners know. Yeah. Why uh, this was, I guess, misconstrued. I'm pretty surprised that this is not what she intended. My frame is, well, I've got a brand new pair of roller skates. You've got a brand new key. I think that we should get together and try them on to see. I've been looking around a while. You've got something for me. Oh, I've got a brand new pair of roller skates. You've got a brand new key. She also says at one point, I don't go too fast, but I go pretty far, which is often quoted as like Mm. a symbol of sex. Right. She was quoted saying in 2013, (laughs) of course, I can see it symbolically with the key, but I just thought of roller skating. I was just remembering roller skating and learning the apparatus. 
It was a thing that went onto your skate to tighten it. And I remember going down Suicide Hill and breaking my front tooth. And it was a beautiful <laughs> tooth. And I was so afraid my mom was going to kill me because she was proud of my teeth. So I looked it up. And I mean, maybe you knew this, but back in the day, roller skates just attached to your shoes. Yeah. Your normal shoes. And then you would have a key mm-hmm. called a skate key. It's like a little tool. And that's what you'd use to tighten the skates to your shoe. Yeah. So the idea behind the song is, I've got new roller skates. I don't have a key. This little boy's got a key. I need to have him help me out. Now, this never occurred to her that... Well, maybe it did. Maybe she just, you know... <laughs> just just uh, playing coy? I think so. I don't know. Hard to tell. She's very yeah. adamant about it. And, yeah. You know, some of these interviews I'm reading are from 1970s, and some of them are from 2013. So, yeah. She's it's like, you went to Woodstock, and you don't... You don't uh, you're not picking up on this? I mean, I hear you. <laughs> she said that she loved singing the song live at first. I used to love singing Brand New Key. It had great shock value dropped in the middle of one of my concerts. I'd be singing along about suffering and the trials of man. And then suddenly, <laughs> I've got a brand new pair of roller skates. It had great effect. After it became a hit, though, the fun kind of wore off, at least for me. Some things, I think, are better left a surprise. And in another interview, she said, At first, I became reactionary to that song because it was all anyone wanted to know about. They didn't remember Melanie with the all-black choir singing Candles in the Wind. They didn't remember beautiful people or anything else. It was all about brand new key. People kept saying, when are you going to come up with another one of those? Her response is, I guess next time I go on another 27-day fast. (laughs) But she did say, I have eaten at McDonald's with hopes of it turning on again, but it never did. That unique combination just never happened again. Wow. So while she did lament the song at first, she certainly came around on it. She says that people would come up to her all the time with stories of how the song brought them back to another time or how it made them Mm -hmm. feel. She even said that Elton John told her that when he heard the song, he knew it was okay to do a silly theme song. Wow. That's funny that you say that because you said candle in the wind instead of candles in the rain just a minute ago. Yeah. Oh, I did, (laughs) didn't I? And he was coming up in the notes. (laughs) Maybe I did. Did I write that? Did I write that? Uh, I did write Amazing. There is no official video, but this is the part of the episode where we would usually watch a video, and I feel like we actually need to hear the song in full anyway. Yeah, agreed. And so I found this video that was posted 16 years ago, and it's a guy, he's posting it. It's an 8mm film done by his sister for a class project in the 1970s. Oh, cool. So it's a cool little old video, and she kind of acts out. She makes a music video. Spot on. It's neat. Oh, wow. This has a lot of views. Yeah, 8.9 million. And once this podcast comes out, my God, it'll be over 9 million. (laughs) How do people find this? Well, probably like me. They're looking up the video. There isn't a video. 8 million views for a high school project. I think we can all agree this is a masterpiece. Yeah. It's really well done. That's <laughs> really cool. And they feature the key. You'll see the key there. Yeah. Huh. I mean, all this is perfect. Yeah. Very well done. I hope this lady became a, a, a major director or something. Yeah. Or at least she got an A on this project. She was making music videos before people were even really seeing them. I mean, before people really make music videos, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Overall, I thought the song is a fun little ditty. I think if this, this was her style, I, I would be like, okay, whatever. But seeing how much more prolific she is, it's kind of like... Yeah, it's really interesting. 
I mean, she still has that kind of rock and roll quality to her voice in the in this recording. You can tell she's like she's pulling back a little bit because it's like a folky little ditty. Yeah. I do feel like this is a song that she would have written and done with sincerity had she been popular in the 1940s, 1950s. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but she was so counterculture doing her own thing at the time. That just feels such a departure. But, but hell, it was a hit. The song even sounds like it's from like the 50s, or early 60s, and not the 70s. Yeah, like, right? Musically, and even a lot of the instrumentation, the backup vocals. Yeah. Which, again, she was thinking about her childhood. That makes sense. Yeah. And then, and then people were telling her, oh, it reminded me of my childhood. Like, it's, it's almost like a period piece. And here we are, people making videos of it for their high school project in the 1970s. This video was made by Nancy Waltersheen. Mm, cool. Shout out to Nancy. Yeah. And Alec is her brother. Yes. That uploaded this in 2008 to YouTube. Good for him. Sometimes the internet is magical. Yeah, it really is. Sometimes. Do we know much about the recording of it? Like, what happened after she was just writing it and her husband was like, oh, as a hit. I mean, I guess they just have access to whatever. Yeah. And can just go record it and get musicians. And Yeah, I don't really have much information about that. Um, they own the label and her husband was a producer. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think they had just yeah straight access to make records and put them out. I know that she... It's like, get in the car. She initially... <laughs> She wanted this to be like a silly little ditty in between, kind of like mm-hmm. a you know crossover from A to B kind of thing. And she said that she would have done it in a much more like silly, folky way that wouldn't have made a big difference. But her husband was the one mm-hmm. was like, it's a hit and, and gave it the production value. Yeah, let's get some percussion and backup singers and piano. They were distributed by a major label, and I failed to look up who that was at the time. But I did read that in an article. I mean, I think they just serviced the radio and kind of took off. It uh, it went up the charts pretty quick, and it, it peaked in December of that year, so eight weeks, nine weeks. Do you know where it peaked? Was this a number one song? Yes, sir. Ah. Number one for three weeks. Wow. It was number one the week of Christmas, 1971. Did you check in with Tom Brahan? Yeah, I did. <laughs> Do of course. Me? Tom said... Brand New Key is a loose and silly sketch of a song, the kind of thing that you can absolutely picture someone writing in 15 minutes. It's blank enough that you can project all sorts of things onto it, and it's knowing enough that these projections don't seem too forced. Brand New Key remains a pleasant little nothing of a song in a time when pop music was growing more expansive and symphonic. It's a happy shrug. Mm. Yeah. I don't disagree. Um, yeah. I mean... The 70s or late 60s and then 70s were certainly a time when pop music, rock music in general was getting weird. These little songs maybe weren't being made as much. Yeah, I wonder if like it peaked in Christmas. I wonder if like Christmas had much to do with it. I think kids were into the song and. Well, yeah, I got you there. Roller skates and the 45 of the song. I wouldn't be surprised. It's a little little combo gift. It spent. Three weeks at number one, and was eventually knocked off by American Pie by Don McLean. Oh, wow. A really short song to a... Really long song. That's that's a song exactly that's what long. I have in my notes. It, Brand New Key is one of, the, one of the shortest number one songs of all time, clocking in at 226 
And Don McLean's <laughs> was the longest number one song up until recently when uh, I don't remember what song it was, but Taylor's version of whatever song. The, right. The 10 minute long That's one. That's right. That, that yep. is the one that surpassed it. It was also number one in Canada and Australia and number four in the UK. It sold over 3 million copies worldwide. Let's take a look at the charts at the time. Uh, the first week that it was number one, I, I will read from. And that, again, was December 20th. No, it, the week of December 25th, 1971. Uh, number 10, we have Hey Girl, I Knew You When by Donny Osmond. <laughs> we have Cherish by David Cassidy. Oh, wow. It's teen idol time. It is. At eight, we have Scorpio by Dennis Coffey and the Detroit Guitar Band. Okay. Number seven, we have All I Ever Need Is You by Sonny and Cher. Mm-hmm. At number six, Have You Seen Her by the Shy Lights. At number five, we have a young Michael Jackson coming in with Got to Be There. Oh. At number four, we have an old-fashioned love song by Three Dogs Night. <laughs> At number three, we have American Pie. And number two, the song that Melanie knocked off the chart, we have Family Affair by Sly and the Family Oh, Stone. Sly is back. So back she in runs store, into yeah. Sly at, at the hotel at Woodstock. Woodstock, like first famous person she sees, and, she and then years later knocks him off for number one. Pretty dope. Wild. Yeah. Uh, there are a couple covers of the song. Uh, I thought so. Dina Carter covered it in 1999. Oh, a country, country singer. Yeah, a little country version. She has a couple jams. Yeah. I like her version. It, it, it's like a very non-year, early 2000 country. Yeah, definitely. Well, they kept like the ragtime piano, which is cool. They just added the the slide guitars, and then she's got the breathy vocals. The, the drums, the way that they record them, or the way that it's, they're, they're kind of tightened, if you will. Yeah. It's very country of early 2000s. Totally. Yeah. All right, then we have oh the Dolly Rots. I'm somewhat familiar. Yeah, it's fun little version. But yeah, they're like a. I don't want to say pop punk because they're like. I don't know, maybe a little more like gothic, a little bit. There probably is a genre term for that, but I'm not the brand. Although this is pretty much pop punk. Yeah, it's not bad. Yeah, Todd Rungan performed this song live. For why? <laughs> I was just about to say, for whatever reason. <laughs> I will. Uh, he's a peculiar guy. Yeah. Uh, and he's just sitting on this stool? <laughs> and he just sings. God, it. these days, he looks so much like... Um, uh, what's the name of the, the villain that Mickey Rourke plays in Iron Man? <laughs> That's what he looks like. <laughs> I know you're talking about. <laughs> it's not very good. character. And he's doing this, like, goofy robot dance. It's just a goofball. Why is he doing this? I don't know. But there is a a version of him and Melanie performing at Daryl's house. Oh, really? Yes. So this just, like, became, like, a staple for him? I would send you that version, Uh. but you don't need to see it. Uh, Other covers include American Idol runner-up Catherine McPhee. Oh. As well as Olivia Newton-John had a version. That I mean, is, not just American Idol runner-up. She had a she had a pretty good career after that. Well, you know, <laughs> Melanie had a great career. Except we all say that she's the girl that sang "Brand New Key." So, par for the course in this episode. Uh, the Olivia Newton-John version is weird as fuck. I, I don't get why they did it. It's for a movie. It's for a few best men. Well, she had to do it because it hit number one in Australia. 
What year is this? Uh, this would have been. I'm this movie that. looks terrible. Yeah, it looks bad. 2011. Yeah. This part at 1:30 is terrible. It's all pretty bad, dude. This is Olivia Newton-John. <laughs> yeah, right. But it looks like she's in the movie too. It's not good. Okay. Huh. Yeah. Sorry. Wow. Sorry about that. Wow, that is not what I expected. Yeah. While this song was popular with kids originally, we actually do have a kids' corner. Oh. The Wiggles have a version of this song. They're from Australia, too. Yeah. If you don't like Melly's version, you're not going to like this version, because it's just more annoying. Uh, there is one very notable parody. This parody is called the Combine Harvester by UK band Wurzels. They're, they're like a joke band. Not the uh, Wiggles. Another world of words. It's hilarious. And uh, I should mention that this was number one for two weeks on the UK chart at one point. This was in 76. The video is great. It's very like 70s British TV looking. So it could be like 100%. Monty Python. 100%. It's essentially the tune of the song about a combine harvester. They really we're thinking like what what is the most random thing we can think of and can we write a song around it and they they said they said tractors and they're like no not weird enough what about a combine harvester love it but it's kind of great the whole band's playing on the tractor it's a trick this is great i almost kind of like this version better (laughs) i love it someone seven years ago said saw the wurzels last night they were amazing. I believe they still are a thing, yeah. <laughs> That's great. They look a lot older. This is worth checking out. This song was featured in the movie Boogie Nights. Oh, yeah. Maybe how I know it. I, don't, I, didn't, I wasn't familiar with the song, but I, the more I hear it, the more I'm like, I definitely feel like I heard this before. And it might have been from Boogie Wait, Nights. so you weren't familiar with it when you, when you started researching this? No. Really? No, no, no. I, I literally heard that radio clip and i was like huh that's not like a weird song and it is interesting but again i think i begly was so it's featured in boogie nights it's also featured in jackass 3d (laughs) it's featured in an episode of fx's the bridge featured in family guy because of course it is Mm -hmm. uh it's featured in always sunny in philadelphia because of course it is oh i think i remember that and it's also in a cover version of the song it's featured in a doctor who episode british tv they they just sunk their claws into this song it was featured in a lip sync battle between jimmy fallon and melissa mccarthy hmm. i could not find a good version of this but i, I don't need find, to watch that i found you don't want to watch it i mean we can yeah it's it's pretty it's a crappy clip so but i was about to say i was about to say i don't think i need to watch that <laughs> no you're watching it you're watching it it's not very good as a uh as a big burt kreischer fan i should mention that this song is the theme to his wife Leanne's podcast, Wife of the Party. <laughs> nice. So he continues to live on. <laughs> uh, so where are they now? Uh, after the success of Brand New Key, Melanie released the song Ring the Living Bell. I don't think I know this one. It's groovy. I can roll this up better, but yeah, not bad. Yeah. So that was her next single? So that was her next single. Uh, to compete with that success, her 
old label Buddha Records released an unreleased song called Nickel Song at the same exact time. Mm. So they're just they're doing that thing where they just release stuff they have. Yeah. That happens. Hey, this has 666,000 views. Sign of the Beast. Well, both Ring Living Bell and Nickel Song charted, and they charted at the same time that Brand New Key was still on the charts, <laughs> making Melanie the first female solo artist to have three songs charting at the same time. Whoa. It's pretty cool. cool. In 1972. She's like, where did this one song come from? Yeah, I don't even remember recording that. And it sounds like older, too. Like, yeah, it definitely. does. It does. But hey, good for <laughs> Buddha on ringing out all they can of the money. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're already preparing a Greatest Hits collection. It doesn't have Brand New Key on it, though. That's true. <laughs> hey, you know, labels got to get paid. In 1972, she won Billboard's Top Female Vocalist Award and received two gold albums and a gold single for Brand New Key. And Rolling Stone had no comment. No comment from Rolling Stone. I'm sure they hated that song. Come on. Uh, <laughs> three of her compositions were hits for the New Seekers, including What Have You Done to My Song Ma, which was also cut by Ray Charles in a very cool, groovy mm. way. Cool. She would become famous for her adaptations of children's songs, including Alexander Beadle and Christopher Robin. Uh, because of this work, she would become a global ambassador for UNICEF, which is pretty cool. Wow. She would go on to have one more top 40 hit with Bitter Bad. What year is this? It's 73. Oh, wow. So this all happened pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah, this is 70s radio rock. Yeah. I'm down here in the comments, though, I got to say. Oh, uh, First off, this person's late cousin Peanut had this on 45. Hmm. Uh, and also, there was a DJ who wanted a raise, so he locked himself in the radio station studio and played only this song for two days straight on WCCC. DJ by the name of Boston Bill, your nighttime thrill. <laughs> uh, okay, did that work for him? <laughs> no. What was the play there? Because it's not a bad song or a great song. So well, was- another person uh, responded and said, I had the radio tuned to WCCC back in 1973 when that stunt was in progress. If I remember correctly, he got a phone call from Melanie, which was broadcast over the air. <laughs> <laughs> really Somebody probably called this. her and was like, they've been playing this for, for two days. I mean, hey, maybe that's helped chart it to the, the top 40 position here. Uh, this Boston Bill... Went on to be quite famous. He announces for NASCAR. Wow. Oh, like a radio announcer? Or? It's, in his, it's in his Wikipedia page. This, this really happened. During the promotional marathon, demonstrators assembled outside the Asylum Street facility, picketing the management of WCCC. So they were on his side. Oh, this is great. Yeah. He was also interviewed during the broadcast by Don Imus. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, there you go. Wild. Uh, yeah, he's on ESPN's RPM Radio yeah. and also on on television on CBS, NBC, ABC, ESPN, ESPN2, Fox, Speed. Yeah, there was a stunt of that nature where they played Napoleon the 14th song over and over and over again on the radio, remember? That's right. I think actually a couple. Yeah. So that's funny. Huh. Our, our obituary songs are coming together here. They really are. Well, Melanie, let's continue here. Uh, she... <laughs> In 1976, she would release an album on Atlantic entitled Photograph. 
Uh, it was not a commercial success. However, the New York Times named it one of the best albums of the year. So there's that. What about Rolling Stone? Uh, well, it was not on Buddha <laughs> Records, so potentially they liked it. Uh, it was hard for her to follow up her success with Brandy Key. As we've been talking about, it was a departure from who she was prior. Uh, and mm-hmm. in a 1990 article, Billboard said, Melanie, whose brand new, brand new key hit number one in December 1971, wasn't a one-hit wonder. She is, however, exhibit A in the case of artists whose careers were hurt more than they were helped by hit records that projected mm-hmm. the wrong image. Yeah. The whimsical, nostalgic nature of Brand New Key gave Melanie a lightweight novelty image, which was at odds with the contemporary pop rock persona she had cultivated in her 1970 hit, Lay Down, Candles in the Rain. It didn't help that the follow-ups to Nickel Song and Ring, Ring the Living Bell were also very light. Still, one imagines that the coy innuendo of the Brand New Key resonated for, say, Madonna in a way that Carole King or Roberta Flack never did. In fact, it's a small step from the tongue-in-cheek sass a brand new key to like a virgin which is kind of a cool i mean who knows interesting connection yeah like elton john said you could be a little silly and i think maybe some other artists maybe were inspired by that too Uh, a uh kind of way of making uh subversive pop music yeah which doesn't sound like was her intention but who knows right if if she took that secret to her grave i think that's awesome yeah pretty rad in the 1980s, she would try her hand at writing music and lyrics for musicals, but nothing really it. fully came of that work. She did, however, win an Emmy for writing the lyrics to the theme song for the television Somewhere series Beauty and the Beast. Oh, were you aware of this? Uh, I've I've seen clips. Your it's it's quite a scene. Quite okay. So you're quite the sight. So I didn't know anything about it. Uh, you've never seen clips of this show before. God, it's fucking weird. It's dude. so weird. It's like a present so takes- day, like New York City version of Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. Which is like a cool idea in theory, I guess. Right? But uh, well, she like finds him in weird. the sewer. Well, come on now. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles takes place in the sewer. So yeah, and for those unaware, Ron Perlman plays the Beast. Oh wow, I was unaware of that. Honestly. Yeah. <laughs> And the makeup uh, is ridiculous. <laughs> the makeup is ridiculous. You should definitely Google at least a photo of it. It's like kind of got like a Jim Henson, like Dark Crystal thing going on. But it, I don't yeah, think they of. intended that. Well, they didn't achieve the greatness of Jim, Jim Henson. <laughs> this gets me pumped up to watch a TV show. Well, the song stops the heart of some YouTuber with a long name that I can't pronounce. <laughs> Very powerful, according to them. Wow, what a! I haven't thought about that show in a long time. So this somehow won an Emmy. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's not good. Uh, maybe there wasn't stiff competition that year. Maybe not. In 2007, Melanie was invited to perform at the Meltdown Festival at the Royal Festival Hall in London. Her sold-out performance was critically acclaimed, with the independent saying. It was hard to disagree that Melanie has earned her place alongside alongside Joan Baez, Judy Collins, Joni Mitchell, and Marianne Faithful in the pantheon of iconic female singers. Meltdown was all the better for her presence. Wow, lovely. And this would be released as a DVD, which I actually might check out. Um, all told, she has released over 30 albums and has sold over 80 million worldwide. She That's substantial. performed... Yeah, she performed at the 
2011 Glastonbury Festival to celebrate the 40th anniversary. Wow. Uh, I believe she also performed at the 1994 Woodstock as well. She was right before Green Day with the mud mud throwing? She might have been. I also found this from 2015. Well, she performed with Molly Cyrus and she performed her song right. Look at the Dunda Masam song mom. I can actually oh, hear cool. Miley singing Brand New Key. Yeah. Oh, yeah, these things that Miley did. These were cool. Yeah. This is a really cool version of it. Uh, Melanie really still sounds great. I should have mentioned that Melanie sings French as well. Ray Charles as a backup singer sings French both. I love it. Another uh, description written by Melanie. Miley grew up with my music and we finally got together. That's all it says. A woman of little words. She's just sitting there uploading videos on her YouTube channel. Love it. Yeah, good for her. Uh, Unfortunately, her husband, Peter, died in 2010. Uh, They were married for over 40 years. Beautiful. And I I think all but one album was produced by him. That's when he was Um, sleeping on the couch. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, they had three kids together, uh, Layla, Jordy, and Bo Jared. Uh, Bo Bobo? Jared is on you. They, maybe. Hey, maybe. <laughs> uh, they're all musicians. Bo Jared is the guitarist that you saw in that one video. Mm. Uh, he also accompanied Melanie on tour for years. Nice. Uh, as we all know, Melanie passed away earlier this year on January 23rd. We do not know the cause, but she was living outside of Nashville. And I read that she was working on an album of cover songs. So hmm. hopefully some of those were completed because it'd be rad to hear those. Um, from her from her kids on social media, they posted, she was one of the most talented, strong, and passionate women of the era. And every word she wrote, every note she sang reflected that. Our world is much dimmer. The colors of a dreary, rainy Tennessee pale with her absence today. But we know that she is still here smiling down on all of us on all of you from the stars which is nice beautiful and as, as always i like to wrap with some quotes from the artists themselves uh so quoting melanie i consider myself to be genreless I'm not a folk singer i'm not a social commentator but i'm definitely driven by the power that people have and when it gets taken away from them that moves me my mission statement is all about human rights at age 20 I didn't even know what a humanist meant, but I was one. I like all kinds of music, but what I like best is to blend different styles so well in one song that both the song and I transcend categories. I hate being pegged as anything, country, pop, whatever. The trick is to become a timeless musical being with timeless musical songs. Mm. And I mentioned that earlier. I think she did. I mean, yeah. Some of the songs That's are cool. timeless. Like I, you know. So she lives on, and hopefully... This episode makes all Melanie fans, including your father, proud of the work that Melanie did. <laughs> Way to wrap it up there. <laughs> she lived a great life. Yeah. Pretty wild. And a uh, pretty weird song. Yeah, weird song. I think she'd just agree a, with it, Just too. a funny little tune. Yeah. And the, uh, the innuendo question is very interesting. I'm actually shocked to... I'm shocked that that wasn't the intention. Might have been. Yeah. You know? And again, I said it before, but if she's taken this secret to her grave, I think that's awesome. Yeah. Like, you figured I wonder. out. She said yeah. that about songs. She was like, once once the song is... What does it matter what I say about the song? 
That's true. Once it belongs to the people. Yeah. I, I was struck researching her. Uh, she seemed like a very like working musician mm-hmm. in the sense of just like from age four on, just making music and would kind of be at a whim. She was a, you know, pretty prolific folk singer in her yeah. own right. And then was asked to come to London to work on a score. So she said, okay. And then was invited to this thing called Woodstock. She said, okay. And then put out 30 more albums. So I feel yeah. like she just was always going to be an artist and was just going to make music no matter what. And yeah. didn't really care. Didn't really have any ambitions or directions of what that would look like. Which just like, or just make stuff, put it out. So I do wonder if this song never happened, I think she would have just kept yeah. doing that, that same thing. And who knows what could have been a hit. And I think that's a little bit why she like, I, th- I think is a little annoyed that she's known as the brand new key song writer. Right. But, she was so much more than that. Yeah, she's and, so much more well-versed in other styles. Yeah. Yeah. I also wonder how much of her career really would have changed that much if this song hadn't happened. She's kind of on a course anyway. Yeah. It's like she took a little detour, and I mean, I'm sure some opportunities opened up, and of course, she was more financially stable and able to pursue other projects, but she was kind of already doing what she wanted to begin with. Yeah, and it, honestly, like she didn't really depart like when she went brand new key took off like a lot i think a lot of artists would have tried to replicate that over and over again but she didn't seemingly. oh yeah look at all those 90s bands that'd be like they have one song that sounds it's the only song on the record that sounds like that becomes the hit the next album sounds yeah. all like that song. or we've been talking <laughs> yeah. about them but napoleon the 14th always weird but then his next album i think <laughs> was like the same song 14 times over some shit like <laughs> He really didn't try hard at all. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. Yeah. Just milking it. I'm glad, man, you uh, you read my mind. Yes. Hey, I only had 24 days since she passed, I so I was going to get to it soon. I know. I, I've been thinking about it since that day, and I didn't do any research until today, so. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> you know. <laughs> you did a great job. on the same wavelength <laughs> there. <laughs> That's a wrap on this episode of You Wanted a Hit. Thanks for listening. Good luck getting that song out of your head. If you enjoyed the show, please do all the things podcasts usually ask you to. They really help. Tell a friend about the show, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, write a review on your favorite podcast app, and visit our website, ywahpod.com. That's ywahpod.com for updates on new episodes and our merch store. We have t-shirts, sweatshirts, hats, coffee mugs, stickers, and more. And it all goes back into the podcast. We would love to hear what you thought of the episode, and we also want to hear if there's something that we missed. You can reach us on Instagram and Twitter at YWHpod, or directly via email at ywhpod at gmail.com. This podcast was researched, produced, recorded, and edited by me and Theo Beidler, and our theme music is by Air Doctor. We'll see you next time.